This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Turn to the book of Jonah. Um, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to be able to get you one. So just go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, raise your hand high. Don't feel bad about it. We have tons of Bibles to give out. Um, we'll make sure that you get a copy of what we're going to read in front of you today. The book of Jonah is a small book, so you'll probably want to look it up in the table of contents. It can be hard, be hard to find. Um, as you've heard already, if you're new, we're a church that believes that God is on a mission to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. God is doing something in our world. He wants to see people who do not yet know him come to know him, to be made followers of Jesus. And then as we are followers of Jesus, he wants us to, to grow in our faith. And then as, as we grow in our faith, God wants us not just to stay in one locality, but to spread throughout the world. God's on a mission to make mature and multiply disciples, and he has created his church to be on the front lines of that mission. The church is God's plan A for reaching the world, and God does not have a plan B. Uh, and so we are here as a church to be part of what God is doing, to join him in his work, and seeking to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. And part of how God tells His church to do that is through the preaching of His Word. His Word is life and truth. And so it is to His Word that we now turn our attention and should come with open minds and humbled hearts. That God would speak to us through what He has to say through the book of Jonah, chapter Two. If you're new, we are in a series in this well-known book about a guy and a big fish. Uh, but as we've seen, this is really not a story about a guy who gets swallowed by a big fish. It's really a story about God and God's relentless love for rebellious people. As we come to Jonah 2, we're really going to see a turning point in Jonah's life. In chapter 1, last week, we saw Jonah was running from God. Well, nothing to do with what God told him to do. In chapter 3, we're going to see Jonah actually starts to listen to God and obey him. What changes from Jonah 1 to Jonah chapter 3? Well, it's what he goes through in Jonah chapter 2. Something happens in this chapter that changed Jonah's heart from a rebellious heart running from God to a repentant heart wanting to please God. That word repentance is new to you. It's just a word the Bible uses to talk about turning from our sin, turning from our desire to do things our own way, and turning to God and committing ourselves to living for Him. Repentance is spiritual breakthrough. That's what it is. It's having a spiritual breakthrough in our lives where we move from, from something that's not good for us to the better place of being the beautiful people of purpose that God's called us to be as we listen obediently to what He says through His Word. Repentance is something we need to do when we first become Christians. It is a one-time thing where we say, yes, I'm following Jesus. This is who I am. It's a one-time thing, and it's an ongoing thing. I think Martin Luther was absolutely right when he started his 95 Theses by saying this, when our Lord Jesus said repent, He meant that the whole of Christian life should be repentance. The whole of Christian life should be repentance. God, God wants us to see us living lives of transformation and newness 
with a desire to live for Him, and where we are consistently asking Him, God, help me to see the things in me that you don't want for me. Help me to see the things in me that don't want you. And help me to turn from them and to turn from finding life in you. This is the Christian life. It is continually turning from our sin and turning to God. God loves us as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up for Him. He loves us as we are, but He loves us too much to leave us as we are. He wants us to be the best version of ourselves that He has created us to be. And so He calls us consistently to repent, to turn, to change, to seek spiritual breakthrough again and again and again. And so in this chapter, we're going to see a key part of how God empowers breakthrough in our lives. And so if, you, if you're someone like me who needs God to move in your life, I think God's Word has something to say to us this morning in Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to tell you this morning's sermon, spiritual breakthrough. Spiritual breakthrough. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. I will read chapter 2 in its entirety. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I'll pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Praise God for the reading of His Word. May it be with us now through the preaching of it. All glory be to Christ. Jonah chapter 2 is a wild chapter. There's a guy who's praying in the belly of a fish. That's not something you see happen every day. But, that, that, but that's, that's not the most wild thing that's happening here. The most wild thing that's happening here is not that some guy's alive in the belly of a fish. The most wild thing that's happening here is that this guy who was running from God who had jumped into the sea, essentially, to try to end his life rather than obey God, has been shown mercy by God. God could have said, hey, fine. You, you really want to run from me that bad? Go ahead. Have it your way. God did not need Jonah to go to Nineveh. God could have raised up very easily someone else to go be his messenger. But Jonah was not just a tool that God was willing to discard. He was a son that God wanted to rescue. 
And so while Jonah told the sailors, throw me into the ocean, hoping to end his life, he didn't realize he was throwing himself into the mercy of God that was waiting for him there. See, what happens in chapter 2 is that Jonah does not get what he deserves. What happens in chapter 2 is that Jonah is shown the undeserved mercy of God. And what changes then Jonah from chapter 1 to chapter 3 is his experience of God's mercy. As he experienced God's mercy towards him, that changed his heart towards God. And so if I could capture the theme of this story in one sentence, the big idea of the story, I think it's this. Our repentance to God, our repentance to God is empowered by relishing in the mercy of God. Our repentance to God is empowered by relishing in the mercy of God. I'm using that weird word relish to hopefully make it a little bit more memorable. It's not something that we use that often unless we're talking about some people on a hot dog. Um, but what relish means is to take deep pleasure in something. Friends, I believe what we are learning from this chapter is that God wants us to take deep pleasure in his mercy. To relish in it. So that our repentance, our desire to turn from sin and turn to God might then be empowered by the relishing of God's mercy that he has shown us. And so how, how do we do that? How do, how do we relish in God's mercy? I think we see three things happening in this chapter to answer that question. How do we relish in God's mercy? Well, we recognize our need for God's mercy. We receive the assurance of God's mercy. And we respond with worship for God's mercy. Let's look at each of these things in their turn. How do we relish in God's mercy? First, we recognize our need for God's mercy. Jonah says in verse 2 that he's in distress. Now that's obvious. You're at the bottom of the ocean about to die. Of course you're in distress. <laughs> thank, thank you, Captain Obvious, for pointing that out. But, but what we need to understand here, Jonah wasn't worried about dying. It's not why he was in distress. Remember, he told the sailors to throw him in. And again, not because he was trying to appease God. Jonah knew God's law. Jonah knew that God does not require human sacrifices. He wasn't trying to sacrifice himself to please God. He was trying to die instead of obey God. That's what's happening when he tells him, throw me over. But as soon as he goes into the sea, he begins to get a glimpse of something far worse than death. He says in verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol I cry. What is Sheol? In the Bible, it's used to talk about God's judgment of the dead. Theologian Brian Estella says it this way, Sheol refers to a place of divine punishment, a curse often wished on the ungodly. See, Jonah had no problem being ungodly. He ran from God. But then when he jumped into the sea, he began to experience some of what it means to actually be allowed to run from God. He says in verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. He, he had been driven away from God. He had wanted to get away, but now he begins to experience what life is like without having God in your life. Jonah begins to taste a little bit of the divine punishment that he deserved. God's punishment for our sin is to say, fine, have it your way. You don't want to be with me? Go. Jonah begins to experience a little bit of what that's like. 
and you realize that, oh, God is what is good. God is what is beauty. God is what is life. And so he is now in despair and distress. The very God he was running from, he now realizes he desperately needs. And so he calls out to the Lord from this place of distress. The distress of experiencing separation from God. Jonah here is recognizing his need for mercy. And he confesses why he is in this situation of needing mercy. He diagnoses himself in verse 8. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah had been chasing vain idols. Not the false idols that the pagan people of his day worshipped. No, in the Bible, idolatry is really anything that we place or anyone that we place in the place of God. I think Peter Williams, a theologian, captures it well when he writes this. The essence of idolatry is anything that commands the central place in our lives and to which we give the loyalty and devotion which rightly belongs to God alone. For some people, money is their God and the pursuit of materialistic goals dominates their life. We can make an idol out of anything. Sport, sex, drugs, politics, career, even home and family. Anything that nudges God out to the perimeter of our lives can become idolatrous. Idolatry is anything that we put in the place of God. What had Jonah been making an idol out of? Well, last week we saw in 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah was really an advisor to the king of Israel. And part of why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he was so wrapped up in the politics of his place. He, he cared more about his nation than God's call to send him to the nations. And friends, I, I think we're actually in a situation where there's a very similar threat in front of us. It's so easy to get caught up in the issues of our country. I read on social media for about five minutes, I'm going to see some Christian fighting about something about politics. Seems like we are doing a far better job of worshiping either a donkey or an elephant than remembering that God has given us the message of a lamb who was slain that we're supposed to take to a lost and dying world. There was a president of a seminary who, in his commencement address, where you go to seminary to be trained to be a minister of the gospel, in his commencement seminary, he mapped out a political path for the Christian, what he called the Christian agenda. Essentially, here's how you get the right judges elected. My thought was, you know where Christianity is growing fastest in the world? Are you, are you aware of that? It's not America. Not even close. You know it's growing fastest? Most people are converting to faith. Islamic Iran. Second most, communist China. Let me tell you, they don't have any Christians on the Supreme Courts in those countries. They don't even have Supreme Courts. And God is not hindered by the lack of Christians' political power. God does not need power in order to be powerful. He already is powerful. But Jonah was caught up in the politics of his place and how easily we get caught up in the same exact thing. He was caught up in an, in an idol of political power and, and he was also caught up in the idol of his own self-righteousness. We're going to say it's really clear in chapter 4, but essentially he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he thought he was too good for him. He made an idol of himself. 
I think this is also something so easy for us to fall into. It's so easy for us to make excuses for our sin, our stuff. That's not that bad. Or at least we're not those kind of people. Who are your, your people that you look at as those people? I was talking with someone once, and they were all upset at this person for how judgmental that person was being. Now, I agree with them that that person actually was pretty judgmental. <laughs> they were definitely in the wrong. But I also tried to help this person who was so upset see that they were looking down on that person for being judgmental, judgmentally. Like, they were experiencing self-righteousness about that person's self-righteousness. But that's what we do. That's what we do. We, we, we can make idols out of anything. But verse 8 says it so clearly. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Like, like we chase idols thinking they'll make us feel loved. We want to feel loved. We want to feel valuable. We want to feel meaningful. And so we can chase all kinds of things in order to experience that. But when we do that, we forsake our hope of actually being loved. Because an idol can never lovingly satisfy you in the way that you were created to be loved by God. And so when we chase idols in order to satisfy ourselves, what we find is that they always fail to deliver what we hope they would promise. A parent who makes an idol out of their child, they're in my whole world, and they just helicopter over them. They sneeze once, and they're like in the ER, you know? Like, like, like they're always, you can't, can't be out of the same room with them first. They, just, they just, just smother them. You know what ends up happening? Well, it's not only they love their child, their whole sense of identity is, and wellness is wrapped up in their child. They need their child in order to make themselves feel loved. They made a, a, an idol out of their child, and when you do that, let me tell you what happens. I've seen it so many times. Eventually, you actually lose the child. Smother a child, they're not going to want to be around you much longer. And so by chasing that idol, you actually lose the very thing you wanted in the first place. That happens in so many ways. So many different things. We chase idols thinking they will fulfill us, but in doing so, we find again and again that they fail to deliver what we are hoping they will. Yet Jonah, we see, he, he had been willing to die before he gave up his idols. The word actually here for idolatry, which is in the Hebrew, is a snare. That's what idols are. They snare us. They trap us. They can get wrap their, their, their greedy little hands around our hearts. And so Jonah, he didn't, he didn't want to turn from his idolatry. He was willing to jump into a sea instead of repent. But as he comes to his end, what he thinks is his end, well, God doesn't let us close the story because he's the author who holds the pen. And so God's mercy is waiting for him in the sea, and God rescues him. And as God rescues him, Jonah now sees his sin for what it is. He sees his sin for what it is. He, he, had, he had been blinded to his idolatry. But now in the belly of the fish, he sees the sinfulness of the sin that he had been pursuing. Friend, what do you need to see the sinfulness of this morning? What's the stuff in your life that maybe you've been excusing and thinking is not that big a deal? If you want to experience God's mercy, it starts by recognizing your need for it. One of the things we need to pray for is, God, wake me up to seeing the sinfulness of my sin. Despite what our culture says, where you need to feel good about yourself, that's the last thing you need. We need to see ourselves clearly as God shows us. God shows us the, the, the idolatrous hearts that we can so clearly have. Maybe there's they're sin that you have been just excusing. Anger. That's not that bad. But it's actually breaking God's heart. Those lustful thoughts or second looks. Well, I'm not acting on anything. 
We are cultivating secret passions to objectify another person who's been made in the image of God. Maybe it's for something that's gone on for so long, it just feels like a part of you. And you don't even know how to change at this point. Friend, God had to send a storm to Jonah to get his attention. I hope it doesn't take a storm to get your attention. But I do know that God can bring good as he gets our attention. If we want to relish in God's mercy, we need to see our need for it, but then not just stay there, not just, okay, I'm a sinful person, thanks, break. No, 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 no. We then anticipate how God meets us in our need. We need to, to see our need for God's mercy, and then we need to receive the assurance of God's mercy, which is the second part that we come to this morning. Receive the assurance of God's mercy. Jonah cries out to God because he sees his need for mercy, and he is sure that he will receive mercy. Look again at verse 4. He says, Then I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He's in the belly of a fish, but he does not anticipate staying there. He believes God will be merciful to him and restore him to such a way that he will again be able to see God's holy temple, which is not the bottom of an ocean, but it's in Jerusalem. In verse 6, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He's still in the pit of the sea, yet he is so sure that he will be delivered that he is talking about it like it's already happened. Why is he so confident that God's going to be merciful to him? Well, if you notice, there's a word that gets repeated six times in these ten verses. When you're reading your Bibles, friends, pay attention to what gets repeated. That's one of the ways that God makes his point. What's the word that keeps getting repeated? Don't worry, you have to read it and it'll take you some time. I'll save you some work. It's the word, the Lord, in all caps, when you see that word, in all, Lord, in all caps, that's a reference to Yahweh. God's personal, covenantal name. It's in all caps because the Jewish people thought it was too holy to actually speak out loud. And so we were not actually 100% sure how it is supposed to be written. And so translators just put it in all capitals. Because there's only a few symbols that were used in the Jewish language to show what this word means. But it is the word that shows the covenantal and personal nature of God. A covenant is an unbreakable promise for God's redemptive purpose. That's what covenant is. It's an unbreakable promise for God's redemptive purpose. And we see God first use this name in Exodus chapter 3. God sends Moses to go free the people of Israel from their slavery to Egypt. And Moses is afraid. And God says, do not fear I'm going to go with you. Moses is like, well, who are you? Look at how God identifies himself. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. The name of God is his covenantal name of redemptive purpose. I'm going to Who's going to go with you, Moses? Who's going to be? It's going to be me. It's going to be the God who made a promise to your forefather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God who's not going to break that promise. How can you know I'm going to deliver you from the most powerful nation on the earth, Egypt? Because I'm more powerful than them. How do, I, how do you know that? Because my name shows that. It's built into my very character is what God 
is saying. And it is this name that Jonah cries out to again and again and again in the belly of the fish. Look at verse 7. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. God said in Exodus 3, I will be remembered in every generation. Jonah is realizing that promise right here in Jonah chapter 2. Yes, I remember the Lord. I remember the character of your name. I remember who you have already shown yourself to be. This is what Jonah is saying. He's saying, God, you are a merciful deliverer. That is who you are. And you're still the same God. And so deliver me now. He is calling upon God's name of mercy. And he is looking to God's provision of mercy. Look again at verse 7. He says, when I, life was saying away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now here's what we have to understand. The temple was more than just a place people went to pray and to worship. At the heart of the temple, what was known as the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place, the heart of the temple was the mercy seat of God. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the temple of the Lord and he would go into the Holy of Holies. And according to the law that God gave Moses, the high priest would take the blood of the sin offering from a goat and the blood of a sin offering from a bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And he would pray for the forgiveness of the people of their sin. And what, what would happen? Well, Leviticus chapter 17 tells us what's going on here. It says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, God's mercy, friends, does not mean that he turns a blind eye to sin. That would not be mercy, that would be corruption. It would be an unjust and corrupt judge who pardons someone they know is guilty. There would rightly be an outcry against that. God's got justice. And so he cannot and will not ever turn a blind eye to sin. Sin against God requires death. Because life is a gift given from God. And so when we use the life God gave us to live for him, and instead use it to live for ourselves, the right punishment of God is to take back the life he gave. Sin requires death. But the center of the temple was a seat of mercy where God's justice could be satisfied, life would be given. Life would be taken. Blood would be spilled. As it should for sin. Justice would happen. And yet also mercy would occur. Because sin would be paid for, and yet the sinner would be spared. And so Jonah calls on the name of the Lord, knowing that he's in distress, knowing that he's been chasing vain idols, knowing that he's been living in a way unworthy of God, but he looks to where the holy temple is. He looks to where the mercy seat of God is. He knows that there's going to be a high priest who's going to put some blood on that seat for him. And so he anticipates receiving God's mercy because he knows God has made provision for him to receive that mercy. And so he says this in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to God because God is the Lord of mercy and because He's made a way for sinful people to receive mercy. And therefore, anyone that, who calls out them for salvation, God can mercifully give it to them. And since salvation belongs to God, 
God can give it to him whenever he wills. He doesn't have to ask anyone's permission. God isn't renting salvation from someone. He has to like give it back, you know, after a little while. No, salvation is his, and so he can give it to whomever he wills. And so friends, pay attention carefully to what's happening here. Jonah's assurance of mercy does not come from himself. He's not looking at him. He's not looking at how he's going to clean up his life and fly right and do the right thing from now on. That's not what's happening here. Jonah's assurance of mercy does not come from himself. His assurance of God's mercy has nothing to do with who he is. It's all about the one he has faith in. He believes in God's covenant-keeping name, and he looks to the mercy seat of God's holy temple, where the God of salvation, to whom salvation belongs, has made a way for sinners to be forgiven of their sin. And friends, I hope you know where this is going already. All these things are just a foretaste of what would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Friends, we have even more reason this morning than Jonah because what he looked forward to in a shadowy way, we now look back to in clear form as we see that Jesus, he's shown us the true name of God and what God is. The night before Jesus died in John chapter, seven, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays that God would glorify his name. And so friends, let, let's be clear, what's, what's happening on the cross as Jesus hangs there paying for our sins, it might look like the feet, but it is the revelation of glory. It is the glory of God's covenant-keeping, promise-making, sin-delivering name shining forth in redemptive beauty. And it is where blood was spilled that could be then put on the mercy seat. Jesus is both the high priest who comes and puts the blood needed on the mercy seat, and he's the one supplying the blood. See, the high priest had to go in year after year after year, taking blood from bulls and goats again and again and again, because no blood from an animal could ever fully remove sin from humanity. But Jesus came, and as he goes into the Holy of Holies as our high priest, his blood now covers the mercy seat and it justifies us fully. The wrath of God and his justice is fully satisfied because his blood is not that of a goat or a bull. His blood is that of the Holy Son of God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yes, friend, we have a need. Yes, friend, there is a stain of sin that marks us. And there, by the grace of God, has been a substance that can wash us clean. It is the holy blood of Jesus. Which is why the last words of Jesus on the cross are, it is finished. It is finished. There are no longer any means for a sacrifice. We're not worried about the fact that the temple of Jerusalem is destroyed and isn't going to be rebuilt and get involved. We don't need a temple. Jesus is the temple. We don't need more sacrifices. He is our sacrifice. Once and for all, it is finished upon the cross. Through Jesus' blood, our salvation has been purchased by God. Salvation does belong to the Lord, and He gives it to whomever He wills, whomever will call upon His name. Friends, if he can give it to Jonah in the belly of a fish, if he can reach Jonah there, how much more can he reach us here in the places that we find ourselves? Friends, the next time you are struggling to believe 
and receive God's mercy for you. Don't look at yourself. Oh, I must really be a good person. There must be something in there somewhere. Stop it. Let me save you some time. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to the blood shed for you on that hill called Calvary. And know, friend, that you can't outsin that mercy. You cannot outsin that mercy. Because God knew all it would take to save you, and He did it all, and that's why Jesus said it is finished. God's not surprised by our sin. We can be surprised sometimes. How did I end up here? God knew we would be there. And that's why Jesus came and died for us. God wasn't surprised by Jonah's sin. It's like, oh man, I told Jonah to go and he ran for me. What am I going to do now? No, God called Jonah knowing Jonah would be disobedient to him, but knowing that Jonah's disobedience is what would actually then lead to him experiencing God's mercy. Jonah's sin did not drive him away from God. Jonah's sin is part of what God used to draw Jonah to himself. Friends, you need to hear us. Our sin against God does not drive God away from us. But it's the very reason Jesus came for us. And so when we see our sin and realize the depth of our need for God's mercy, and when the sinfulness of our sin can shake us, we need to understand it does not shake Jesus. He knew and he knows what our sin is. He carried it on the cross. And so your sin and my sin does not make God regret his choice to save us. It's what led him to save us in the first place. Friends, we do have a great need for God's mercy. Praise the Lord, we have a great Savior who's given us mercy. Aren't you grateful for the mercy of God? I can't believe I'm standing here talking about God's mercy. I should be a smoldering wick on a pavement somewhere. If you knew me in high school, you'd agree. I'm not just talking about high school. I'm talking about stuff I did this past week. The fact that this morning I could sing. Jesus, he took my place. A divine exchange. Hallelujah, grace is mine. Friend, that's not the song we deserve to sing. But we receive mercy in Christ. I got to move on because I'll sit here and cry all day. But how good it is. How good it is to receive mercy in Jesus. And friends, if you're here, before I move on to our last point, I just want to appeal to anyone listening to this who's not yet fully given your life to Christ and doesn't know the taste of his mercy. You might have a lot of Christians about, questions about the Christian faith. And questions are good. Questions can help us engage with God. I would love to help you try to find answers to those questions as much as possible. Engage in your questions. Engage them. Be honest about them and honestly engage them. Sometimes people just have questions and they don't want to do anything about it. Like, no, honestly engage in them. That's a good thing. But friends, I want to hold out a question to you today. You've done wrong. What are you going to do about it? No one's perfect. You know you've done wrong. What's your plan for that? Friends, here's a plan. 
you don't have to be held accountable for it because Jesus hung for it on the cross. This is the gospel of Jesus. He has paid for your wrongs for you. And if today you believe in Him by faith, the mercy of God's salvation is yours. And I just pray you would receive it. And then when you do, I pray you'd relish in it. We relish in God's mercy by recognizing our need for God's mercy, by receiving the assurance of God's mercy, and then finally, and this will be our quickest point, but it is oh so important, how do we relish in God's mercy? We respond with worship for God's mercy. Respond with worship for God's mercy. Jonah closes his, his prayer here in verse 9 by saying, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, and what I vowed I'll pay. He had confessed his need for mercy. He had been assured of God's mercy. And now he's giving God some praise. And not just with his lips. Notice that what I vow I'll pay. He's made a life vow to God. God, I'm going to thank you, not just with what I sing, but with how I live. That word for vow there means to make a sacred commitment to the Lord. See, before there had been false idols in Jonah's heart that he had been paying allegiance to. There's so many things that we can pay allegiance to. But now he is experiencing God's mercy, and now he is recommitting his life to the Lord. Not to earn God's approval. Not, okay, God, I'm paying you back. No, he was already sure that he had received mercy. This is how he is responding to what he's received. Listen, friends, we can't pay God back for his mercy. Every day is a day, as Pastor Caleb said earlier this morning, right, God's mercies are new to us every morning. You know what that means? Our debt to mercy increases every day. Every day you're alive, you're more of a debtor to mercy than you were the day before because God is showing you new mercy. We can't pay God back. The good news is he does not ask us to. We get deeper and deeper into the depths, the debt to God's mercy, so we don't pay God back for it. What do we do? We rejoice that we get to receive it. We rejoice that we get to receive it. We don't have to pay him back, but friends, we should not take it for granted as we, as we, see, as we see the depths of our sin, as we see our experience of mercy increasing daily. What should that lead? Well, as our debt gets bigger, and as God keeps giving us mercy, our gratitude to God should keep getting bigger. See, so often we get this wrong as Christians. The longer we're a Christian, the, the, sometimes the temptation can be, the easier it is to not feel the sinfulness of our sin, because like we're not as bad as when we were running around before Jesus, hopefully, um, right? Like like we do grow in being hopefully godly, pe more godly people, right? So it can be easier sometimes to, to lose sight of the sinfulness of our sin, and because of that, God's you know, heart's God mercy. It was like, oh, you were merciful to me when I was you know get, getting high every day and had you know five babies from five different women. Like when I was doing crazy stuff, like you were. But now it's like, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, yeah, sure. I, cuss someone out as they cut me off in traffic, but like I'm not killing anyone again. Like, like we, we, we do these things, but here's the reality, friends. Here's the reality, friends. Your actions might change, but our hearts haven't. And as we grow in maturity, a sign of growing maturity is not seeing our sin as less, but as more. Paul, towards the end of his life in 1 Timothy said, I'm the chief of sinners. Not I was when I was persecuting Christians, I am in the present tense as he was a leader in the church. He was probably not doing a lot of bad stuff. He shouldn't have been or he would have been disqualified as an elder. He's probably living a very godly life. And yet, there was just a reality where he saw God's holiness. And the more he saw God's holiness, the more he realized his depravity, the more he realized his need for God's mercy. And so, friends, the more that we receive God's mercy, whether you just became a Christian two seconds ago when I encourage you to pray, or whether you've been a Christian now for the past 50 years, the more we receive God's mercy, the more we should grow in gratefulness 
for God's mercy. We should grow in gratefulness for God's mercy and then we should respond with praise to God for His mercy. Friends, there should be no one in life more grateful than a Christian. No one in life more grateful than a Christian. I know sometimes it can be hard for us to be grateful because the reality is life is not always great. Life is not always great. See the sermon from two weeks ago on lament. We can go through very hard and very painful things. Life is not always great. But friends, God's mercy doesn't mean that we'll get the help we want. God's mercy doesn't mean that we'll get the financial security that we seek. God's mercy doesn't mean that we'll always have the family that we desire. No, God's mercy is actually so much more than that. God's mercy is the reality that you and I were facing Sheol straight in the face. We were staring God's judgment right in front of us. God has spared us from what we deserve. The eternity that we deserve to be separated from God forever and judged for our sin. That eternity, friends, if you placed your faith in Christ, that eternity is no longer yours. Because God's been merciful to you. Here's the reality, friends. No matter how bad things are in life, we can, again, we can be honest. We don't have to say I'm too stressed to be blessed. No, we can be honest about how hard things are, right? Cue all the sermons I've given on lament. Like, we should be honest with God about how hard things are. But here's what we need to understand. No matter how bad, bad things are for us, we deserve far worse. I think the rapper Requay is totally right when he said, if I fought for my rights, I'd be in hell tonight. If I fought for my rights, I'd be in hell tonight. That's, that's what we deserve. But that's not what we've been given. God's been merciful to us in Jesus. And so no matter what's going on around us, friends, here's what should be coming from us. Thanksgiving to God for His great mercy in Christ. Jonah said, I'm going to make a vow to live a life of praise to you. Now I don't know what it meant for him to live a life of praise in the belly of a fish. But I do that means that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can be praising God. We can be praising God. Not only with our lips, but with our lives. We should praise Him. Not just by coming here on Sunday, although that's certainly part of it. Praise Him at work tomorrow by speaking openly about your faith. Do, do your coworkers know how you're someone who's received mercy? Talk about it on your block. Right? When we're celebrating the Eagles win in about six hours. They know that you're excited actually about something even more. The mercy of God in your life. We should be talking about this. That's one of the ways that we praise God. We should pray to God by thanking Him. When was the last time you just thanked God? Didn't ask Him for something. Just thank Him for what you've already been given. Now listen, we can ask Him for stuff, absolutely. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Absolutely, ask God for the stuff that you need. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying, realize, you've already been given the greatest need that you possibly have. When was the last time you said, God, thank you? You woke me up this morning. I'm breathing today. I deserve to be on the bottom of a pit, but I'm walking around by your mercy. We praise Him by talking about our faith. We praise Him by talking to Him in prayer. We praise Him by singing, friends. We praise Him by singing with hands uplifted and voice raised. Now, I know that I probably look like an idiot some Sunday mornings, but let me tell you, who cares what we look like when we know that we should be dead at the bottom of an ocean, when we know that we were lost with nowhere to go, when we know that we should have been left in our sins, but God has raised us up from a pit, and God's given us new life in Jesus. Friends, I don't know about you, I just got to give God some praise. 
Our whole lives should be lived for his worship. Our whole lives should be lived for his worship. So as we come to the close, friends, friends, God wants us. He wants you. He wants you to grow more and more into the person of beauty that he has created you to be by listening to him and obeying him. That's the best version of yourself. It's one that's aligned with God's will by listening to his voice. He welcomes us to come to him as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He wants us to live a life of repentance where we are continually seeking spiritual breakthrough. We're grateful what's happened. We're not just satisfied for where we've been. We want to continue to grow into the people God wants us to be. And how we are empowered to live a life of repentance, how we can experience spiritual breakthrough after spiritual breakthrough. Friends, it's not by trying harder. It's not by just doing more. Our repentance to God is empowered by relishing in the mercy of God. So here's your take home today, friends. Go home and enjoy the mercy you've received. Relish in it. Maybe you need to start by taking some time to recognize more of your need for mercy. Maybe you need to pray today to see the sinfulness of your sin in deeper ways. Maybe, maybe you need to pray that the Spirit will strengthen you to receive the assurance of God's mercy. You need to stop looking at yourself. You need to spend some more time looking at Jesus and what you received in Him. Or maybe you need to respond with some praise, some worship. Maybe, maybe you've been holding back a little bit. God's calling you to start using your voice and using your life a little bit more to give Him thanks. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but friends, I do know that God wants all of us to relish in His mercy more and more and more. And as we relish in His mercy, our lives are empowered to pursue the repentance He wants for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer.